0: I want you to take a moment and think back to your first days of high school. Seriously, stay with me here. Think back to that time and try to remember how you felt. A little like a fish out of water, right? You didn't quite know where to stand, who to talk to, or where to go. You caught on quick, though, I hope. You figured out the unwritten rules of the hallways. You learned which cliques to avoid, which clubs to join, and what fashion was considered cool or not. Now think back to the first few days of the job you're currently at. Similar feeling? Even if you know how to do the technical parts of the job, the actual tasks you were hired to do, there are those unwritten rules that you had to figure out. You probably heard the phrase, that's not how we do things around here, several times. Navigating high school and navigating the workplace can be more similar than we'd like to admit. We like to think we've evolved and matured since then. So, how can we understand these "quote unquote" rules if no one tells you them? I'm Kathy Bowers, and you're listening to the Objective Lens.
1: I think healthcare in general—it's a demanding profession, and it requires perfectionism. We have no room for error. We make an error, and it could be a fatal error and um, so we're you know we introduce things like uh, these reported learning systems r l s systems i I'm, I'm not I'm not sure if you've heard of that term, but you know it's a tool that's supposed to be used that we we report an error or a near miss, and it's supposed to not be punitive, and yet it becomes a finger pointing tool quite often and um We really need to be investing, I think, more time um, educating, you know, whether it's internal or external,
0: um, as opposed to blaming. That's Renee Giroux. Renee has been a laboratory manager since 2013, but has worked in the field since graduating in 1991. She has worked in several hospital labs across the country and within all five disciplines too. She has a perspective of the laboratory environment from several angles. We talked a bit about the external forces that shape the culture in the lab. One major one is stress.
1: Increased workload, uh, decreased resources. As soon as you get poor morale, you, you tend to see an increased absenteeism. Um, we're always dictated by the clock. We've got time constraints, we've got turnaround times, we, we're constantly, you know, Publishing turnaround time reports. I, I think that those are big drivers of the workplace stress.
0: As she said there, healthcare is demanding work. It's a high stress, low resource, competitive environment. It has a unique culture that unfortunately doesn't have the best reputation. I've read the term shame and blame associated with healthcare work enough times to indicate that this is a very real issue. It's estimated that one in 10 Canadians work within the healthcare sector, and it's one of the most overburdened industries in the country. Being in an overburdened industry can have detrimental effects on the employees. This can come in forms such as poor performance, low employee engagement, absenteeism, interpersonal conflict, and even hostility. This isn't surprising to those who work in the field. At the CSMLS, we have been hearing stories from members for years about the stressful, almost toxic environments they work in. We hear from members who are fed up and they need to take long and short-term leaves. They are feeling trapped, feeling that they can't change it. How can an industry made up of healers and caregivers create such a negative environment?
2: So I think it happens everywhere. I think in healthcare, it's, it's heightened because of the nature of healthcare. You've got very vulnerable people you've got very um you know high stake situations right and mm-hmm. it's sort of a, a perfect uh, um, perfectionist kind of environment people want to do the right thing they don't want to hurt people they want things to go well and when things go bad it's not like you know a car factory where you put the wrong you know steering wheel in the car you know these are people's lives these are people's Futures. This is, you know, if you make mistakes, you cause more pain or you cause more damage or you cause more hurt to people. And it's not Mm -hmm. like you're just, you know, doing widgets or you're managing, you know, money files or, you know, in a bank kind of thing, right? So Mm -hmm. it's a very personal kind of environment. And uh, you, you do, I think, get a lot of people who have very high expectations of themselves, very high standards for them.
0: That's Pam Marshall, the Executive Director of Patient Relations and Legal Affairs at the Scarborough Hospital. Before this role, she was a registered nurse and even pursued a law degree. She worked for the College of Nurses of Ontario, which led her to an interest in pursuing a master's in dispute resolution. She knows a thing or two about the culture of healthcare, both positive and negative. I found Pam when I was researching this topic. She and a colleague had written an article in Healthcare Quarterly back in 2005. The article dealt with preventing and managing conflict in healthcare but it interested me because of its discussion on culture. It highlighted healthcare's culture of fear, which leads to a culture of conflict. There have been many studies done regarding the workplace environment in nursing. Understandably, the nursing culture is different than the lab culture, but both work within the confines of healthcare. So what nurses are feeling or experiencing likely has a direct effect on how they work with the lab, and vice versa. In a study of over 4,000 nurses, it was found that they mainly used a passive-aggressive style of communication. Often when faced with conflict, they just avoided it. When asked to explain this avoidance, the answers were consistent. There was fear of retaliation, fear of hurting someone's feelings, fear of being rejected by coworkers or colleagues, and fear of the situation being seen as their fault. This is human nature and is probably familiar even within the lab. Pam talked a bit about this fear and conflict in the workplace.
2: Conflict exists everywhere, right? It's part of human nature. If you interact with people personally and professionally, you're going to get into conflict. Conflict's all about me differing in what I want to what you want.
0: Conflict is a normal part of interacting with people in the vast majority of work situations. But in healthcare, Conflict Affects Patient Safety. In her article, she sums up how fear leads to this by saying, The unspoken fear and anxiety creates an environment of disarray and dysfunction. Dysfunction leads to conflict within disciplines, between teams, and care providers. This isn't good. There are no positive outcomes for patients or health professionals who work in a fear and conflict riddled workplace. The lab works within the healthcare team. There is a culture in the lab. There is also a culture amongst nurses and doctors, too. Now you have each of these subcultures vie for limited resources within a hierarchy. And then somehow all these subcultures have to create one culture that works for everyone. Just thinking about this delicate balance of how all these professionals work together is mind boggling. Sort of like that high school scenario I mentioned earlier, all these different groups of people in one place at one time, creating their own set of rules. How do you go about changing unwritten rules of a group of people? In essence, how do we change the culture? Culture has been defined as the values, beliefs, assumptions, attitudes, and behaviors shared by a group of people. Let's focus on the work environment and think of the people you work with, your colleagues, managers, directors, the leadership as well, CEOs, vice presidents, they're all part of this group. I think one of the more important aspects mentioned in the definition of culture is behavior, culture is how this group of people behave within a specific environment. What better way to investigate this topic than to look at the culture around me at the CSMLS office? We've been talking a lot about our culture lately as we went through the process of trying to articulate the culture here at the office. The project took the thoughts and ideas of staff and leadership into account and turn those into tangible culture principles that we all agreed on. So culture has been on our minds here at CSMLS. I sat down with our HR and operations coordinator, Catherine Coles. She was the lead on our own project. So I wanted to pick her brain on the effect of culture in a workplace and specifically about the need to define culture in an organization.
3: Once you've defined it and you know what it is and you know the behaviors that you value and are looking for, Then you can, again, reward, engage employees more, and that increases the happiness of employees if they, it's clear and they understand um, what everyone is supposed to be doing and how decisions are being made. So it becomes really clear for employees as well that this is what we're going to be basing our decision-making framework on. And so they can better understand, because if we can't always tell them everything about a situation, they'll at least have these to fall back on as knowing that's how we've arrived at our decisions and how we're moving forward with the organizations and where the goals are coming from based on these things.
0: At the top of this episode, I talked about those unspoken or unwritten rules, but it really shouldn't remain that way. Having a defined culture is an organizational tactic to help create a cohesive workforce. As Catherine mentioned there, it gets everyone working towards the same goals. I know this sounds very much coming from the business world, but I think it can be applied to healthcare too. If everyone has the same goals, say helping patients, then it should be easier to work within that defined culture, no matter which department or unit you work in.
3: Organizations with a well, a strong, well-defined culture um, outperform financially and You know, in every way, engagement, happiness, less turnover, all healthiness of their staff as well. All of those things, again, because everybody's on the same page. Everyone understands the direction they're moving in. They understand what's expected of them. Employees are often more autonomous because they're able to go away with these cultural aspects that they know. That's what they're supposed to draw on when. You know, serving their customers or members, and they can use those and not have to interrupt what they're doing to go and ask and get permission for things. They automatically can just flow and do their job because they know what they're supposed to be doing.
0: There is nothing worse than not knowing how you should act or what you can or can't say, it can cause undue stress in an already stressful environment. Healthy workplaces take the time to define their accepted culture and acceptable behaviors with employees. Companies like Netflix, Google, and Facebook are known for their unique workplace cultures, and there is a reason for it. I'm not just talking about workplace massages, unlimited vacations, or ping pong tables. It's about much more than that. These companies define exactly what they expect from their employees. And this is beyond the actual work performance because that is a requirement of getting paid. They take those unwritten rules and write them out in bold for everyone to see. Their culture principles define what behaviors are important, valued, and even rewarded. They hire and fire people based on these parameters. It can include the expectations of how employees interact with each other, how they support each other towards their work goals and even how they present themselves in public. It's all well and good to ask for these principles to be followed, but leadership has to offer some support for executing them too. And at the same time,
2: the one thing that we all do every day, constantly, is talk to people and communicate with people. And there's very little resources frequently put into organizations for communication skills training or conflict resolution skills training or Um, managing difficult conversations, training, whatever you want to call it. There's all kinds of good programs out there and and lots of good instructors and lots of good ways of of putting that in place. And it just, again, goes back to sort of the notion of funding and and what you can spend your money on. And, Mm, you know, hospitals have to make those hard decisions. And sometimes these things are seen as sort of soft skills, you know, sort of conflict resolution training or communication skills training are seen as kind of soft skills. You know, I have a budget for legal Fees, right? I don't have a budget for communication skills training, right? So lots mm-hmm. of organizations are like, I think it's getting better. I think lots of organizations have much more, and ours has done a really good job. I think um, lots of organizations have robust organizational development uh, departments, which are you know tying into that and seeing those things as being much more important, and so they are they are putting some resources into those um, those so-called soft skills because. I think they're actually, you know, life skills that we all should have.
0: That's Pam again, talking about where money can be spent for training in order to assist an organization in developing those acceptable behaviors. Those soft skills are valuable in helping employees handle conflict, to communicate effectively, and essentially eliminate that fear mentioned in that nursing survey. Typically, organizations work in a top down format. The ideas or directions come from the top executives and management. In the examples of Google and Facebook I mentioned, it's the organizations that set out the expectations. Leadership explains what to do or not to do, and we look for support to carry out those expectations, such as in training, as Pam mentioned. However, when thinking about culture and in
3: an attempt to change culture, Things aren't so linear. So the buy-in, I think it it still does need to come top-down to some extent because the leaders need to be behind it. They need to believe it. They need to be living it actively as well so that just like anything, if the leaders are, are behaving that way and are able to reward the same behaviors that are required, then the other employees, again, as long as it doesn't conflict on a really deep level for them, then they can begin to follow suit as well and behave in a similar way to move the goals of the organization forward and and the culture as well. I mean, if it does conflict with something for them on a really personal level. So yes, leadership should have a good
0: idea of what the expected culture already is and if there are changes needed. Once they've identified the accepted culture behaviors, It's up to them to live them on a daily basis. You know the saying, practice what you preach. Organization leadership needs to demonstrate the desired culture. They need to live by those principles, reinforce them, and reward others for also using them. Creating a culture is everyone's responsibility. Catherine mentioned how helpful tools like the culture principles can be to management, especially when it comes to things like recruitment, retention, or performance management. When you're trying to find the person who meets that elusive fit of your department, or when you're trying to give feedback to an employee, being able to define the issue is important.
3: Well, it's true. If the fit just isn't there, that's always the term we use because it's a safe way of saying there's something that just doesn't work. And if you have a defined culture, then you're able better able to put your finger on what it is that isn't fitting because... I've found since we've developed those principles or aspects or whatever you want to call them, we've had way more conversations about, no, it's this one that's bothering me, so you need to address this. That's what it is. It's not performance. It's not anything else. It's that particular piece of our culture that we've agreed is important to us that, you know, you're not upholding.
0: This is where having a defined culture that each and every employee agrees to can come into play. Each employee can take ownership of the culture principles and, for lack of a better word, enforce them. As much as leadership is the drivers of this desired culture, the human resource professionals in your organization play a vital role as well. Catherine, as an HR professional herself, had a few comments on this.
3: A lot of the time it does come through as you know something else HR has drafted in theory and it looks pretty and it's nice but you want them to be able to see how you can actually use it day to day and that it actually does mean something day to day in how we behave and, and interact with each other.
0: The HR department has a unique perspective of the workplace. They can take a step back and see how all the different teams function individually and together. Catherine told me that in her role, she's able to work with management and leadership to continually monitor the use of policies And in this case, our culture principles.
3: With all workplaces, you know, there's always employee relations issues to deal with as well. And I think, like I said, those ones are really good to draw people back to if there is a conflict or a problem or something to be addressed. Those are the things that you can go back to and say, you know, this is one of our core items and this is the behavior we expect And this is where we need to go (laughs) for you to get to the expectation. So I think a lot of the time, those types of things, again, it's another tool to be able to use for managers or HR people, or even just each other, because we've said, you know, we want to think about these every day. We want to use these every day. If you see someone not respecting someone, then, you know, it's very easy to say, look, don't you remember? That's one of our core principles for our culture. So we want to make sure we're being respectful of each other.
0: The other place culture can be helpful is in the onboarding process. Like that feeling you have when you start a new job and no one is truly telling you the rules of the road. Using defined cultural values as a guide can help with new staff and the staff that are tasked with orientation.
2: Our new graduates are coming out with those kinds of skills. The challenge is that they often come into an organization or a unit where that isn't necessarily the norm. And if you've got a unit that's a long-standing group of people, whether it's nurses or lab technicians or physicians, whoever it is, they have their certain culture. They have their way of doing things, and this is the way we do it here. Mm-hmm. And if you're the new guy or the new girl coming in and you're trying to, you know, sort of utilize your conflict resolution skills or your communication skills that you learned and you feel are helpful, it's really hard because you often get co-opted into – That whole, this is the way we do it here. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to tell us we do things wrong? So it takes a very strong, you know, minded individual to sort of bring them, you know, bring their sort of knowledge into that program or into that unit.
0: Like Pam said there, sometimes it's up to each individual to get past the, that's how we do things around here mentality. You should take ownership of the culture you work in. It's not something that just happens to you. You are part of it, contributing to it or changing it. Here are some ways that you, as an individual, can have an effect on your workplace culture. Own your role. Take a good hard look in the mirror and ask, am I part of the problem? Your attitude and own behaviors are contributing to the culture. Use influence. True leaders aren't always the boss. Set an example to influence those around you. Be open, transparent, and fair. Work on your communication and conflict resolution skills, ones that will encourage positive outcomes. Talk to HR. As I mentioned, your human resource department can be a wealth of information, education, and helpful advice. You can also help them get an insight into the culture you experience that they may not be aware of. And be patient. Changing culture takes time. Behavior modification doesn't happen overnight. Culture isn't just the latest buzzword. It's a useful tool for high-functioning and successful teams. It helps ensure goals are met within a work environment that everyone can be comfortable in. It's also a tool everyone can use as a way to protect their work environment, to be the most effective employee, to create positive work relationships, and to finally leave those high school days behind. The Objective Lens is written and produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers, and is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. Editing and technical assistance by Joel Tercini. Administrative support by Redmilla Minor. For other episodes, supplemental content, and bonus material, visit our website at podcast.com. Dot if you're in the medical laboratory field, you will want to go to the website to find a link to a short quiz. By completing the quiz, you will earn a certificate verifying professional development hours for listening to this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Come chat with us on Twitter at csmls or on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com/csmls.